Hey everyone, thanks for listening this month. I'm Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. It takes a lot of work to put this show together every month and the stories we're doing daily at LiveWire Calgary. I understand that in this difficult economic time, a monthly contribution to independent, agenda-free, community-focused news just isn't in the cards. That's why we've launched our Just Once campaign. You can find it under the Members tab on our LiveWireCalgary.com homepage. If each of the 600,000 readers we had last year donated $1 just once, we could fund a dynamic, robust, and gritty news team dedicated to delivering you more stories on Calgary. Consider visiting us there and making your contribution just once today. Enjoy the show. This is Live Wired in Calgary. Hey everyone, welcome to the April edition of Live Wired in Calgary. As always, I'm your host, Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. I want to acknowledge that this show, done with the incredible partners here at CJSW 90.9 FM, is put together on traditional Treaty 7 lands. It has been a busy month and the show's coming around at the perfect time. This month, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We'll touch on the whole situation around the Dairy Queen development denial, Bill 68, you're probably wondering what that is. And I'm going to have Dwayne Bratt along to share his insights on it. Calgary's downtown strategy and a $200 million funding request. And some interesting work being done right here at the University of Calgary on everybody's favorite topic, public engagement. Researcher Becky Poshman will join me for that segment. It's busy. It's fast-paced, just like our 24-7 news cycle, so stick around. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and now Clubhouse at LiveWire Calgary and on Instagram at LiveWire underscore Calgary. Late last week, there was a story at the City's Subdivision and Development Appeal Board about a Calgary family's Dairy Queen business that was destroyed by fire in 2019. Now, I'm just going to give you the Coles Notes version here. If you'd like more background, you can find it at Global Calgary with stories from Heidi Pearson and Adam McVicker or a column from the Calgary Herald's Licia Corbella. I will note that some of the content that I referred you to there didn't include specific details from the city's position until after the fact. This family had put forward a redevelopment application on that parcel. The application was subsequently denied. Cue the uproar over the big bad city stomping on a family's dream to rebuild. Much of the criticism was shouldered by Councillor Drew Farrell, who, in the development package, expressed strong opposition. What wasn't initially explained well were the finer details of the application. The city later came out and said that they allow anyone to rebuild a replica of the previously existing building, especially in these exigent circumstances. This development, however, had substantial changes to it that triggered it to be reviewed once again for some of the city's more current planning policies. 
It's an unfortunate story, no doubt. It pits two clear sides against one another. No one wants the family business to be closed on account of city policy. It's a business they built with blood, sweat, and tears. But the city does have a direction they want to go with planning. Since there were reasonably significant changes to the original building, they had to review it against the modern redevelopment policies. What's concerning is how it turned into an emotional, personal battle in the media. Unfortunately, without all of the facts to start. That's happening increasingly often as a war continues to be waged in the media for or against public policy. This matter isn't over. According to Global Calgary's story, the city is committed to working with the family. I expect to hear more on this over the next month. This next piece is a little bit of a leap from our last segment, but it can be tied indirectly to recent talks about the Guidebook for Great Communities and the North Hill Local Area Plan. You may recall during that debate on those planning documents that many Calgarians came to the public hearings and referred to the public engagement, or the lack thereof. It was the trigger for University of Calgary researcher Becky Poshman to look at the city's public engagement, but through the lens of the communities that are impacted. Here's a portion of my conversation with Becky last week. I'm here with Becky Poshman. She is a lead researcher with the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape with the University of Calgary. That's a real mouthful. Becky, you're working on an interesting project that involves public engagement. Um, Maybe you can tell me, give me a little bit of the layout of the project you're working on right now. So I'm working towards my thesis right now for my Master's of um, Environmental Design. Just a disclosure, this project is not being funded by the school or the City of Calgary or anyone in in those um, organizations. The reason for the project is to focus on community engagement from the perspective of the community association. Lately, there has been a lot of engagement taking place in the City of Calgary, And all all of the engagement is driven from the side of the decision makers. So that could be the city of Calgary or the developer that's coming into the community. There aren't really any tools available for community associations on how best to enter these conversations and how best to engage their community members to ensure that they're up to date and knowing what's taking place when it comes to urban planning and development. So the intention of this research would be to work in collaboration with community associations across Calgary to develop a community engagement toolkit that they would be able to utilize when when urban planning and development projects come into their boundary of their community association so they best know how to proceed in those conversations. I do need to ask about that public engagement aspect. Obviously, we had two big issues recently, uh, the Guidebook for Great Communities and the North Hill Local Area Plan, where the co- one of the more common themes throughout that conversation was this issue of public engagement and, and lack thereof. I, I mean, is this, is this an issue for a lot of communities when it comes to whether it's a big picture overarching document like the guidebook or the North Hill local area plan or even their, 
their local land use redesignation in in their neighborhood? This is where the challenge lies with this with these scenarios is that when it's a statutory document, so anything like the guidebook or these local area plans, engagement is required by the Municipal Government Act. So the city of Calgary has to go out and and complete engagement on these projects in order for it to go through to council for a vote. And also the public hearing is an aspect to public engagement. So it does count as part of that engagement. When we look at land use redesignation applications, the applicant is not required by the MGA to complete engagement with the community. So most of the time in those scenarios, it's the community association that is having to deal with the brunt of community members being upset towards this significant change that could be taking place in their community. And a lot of the times I find that community associations don't have the proper tools on how to deal with these scenarios because they are quite stressful. And as a reminder, CAs are just, we're volunteers. We Not necessarily everyone has a background in planning or background in engagement on how to deal with these situations. So when we look, when we are separating them out, the engagement is needed for the, the statutory type policy documents, but it's not required for the land use, more impact, direct impacted projects, so development permits and land use changes. When we look at what happened with the guidebook for greater communities, it lacked in, in engagement. A lot of the community associations I chatted with about a year ago on this subject, actually, we were pretty shocked at how there was little to no engagement taking place. And if there was, it was very quiet. Um, it wasn't really noticeable. There was no direct um, communication with CAs across the city to provide input on these documents. So I think that's a big challenge. Let's dovetail it into the research work that you're doing. You had started off saying, you know, you're, you're looking for a way to provide a toolkit for the community associations because quite often it is decision-driven. And, and if I were to apply a different lens to that, quite often what the feedback that I hear is there is already a decision made and the city is getting engagement on that predetermined decision. You're hoping to get feedback from community associations, community groups, community members on on maybe how how that kind of plays out. How do you think that this can help inform community associations down the road? I think it can just give CAs confidence that they know how to best approach the conversation. I I know that decisions aren't necessarily always made enough how I've always approached my engagement tactics with my community members, especially. And I've been in engagement through a number of different avenues. I've been the decision maker, I've been the consultant, and I've been the participant. So I'm having, I'm, I've been in all, I've acted in all scenarios of public engagement. Um, I can tell you that on the decision making ground that a lot of the engagement that I've come across has helped make decisions and been used to make decisions. It'll be interesting once I get into conversations in my interview stage with CA to see how other people are feeling about this because I don't believe that decisions have necessarily been made because I've taken the time to ensure that the lines of communication are open and that um, we as communities have an opportunity to speak with the city or the 
the applicant about the project just to give them a heads up being like, hey, we we see that there's a change happening. We appreciate the change that's taking place. However, what you're suggesting may not fit with what the commu- what works with the community. So why don't you sit down and talk to us and we can have a really good conversation to make sure that this development at the end of the day works for the community and not just putting money in the person's pocket. And I think by involving the the city file manager and also your ward counselor on these in these conversations, you can really open up those lines of communication to ensure that everyone that's part of the engagement is being heard and that there's they're having an opportunity to provide input. Many think the city could do a much better job of public engagement. With the toolkit Poshman hopes to create, perhaps Calgary's community associations can level the playing field when engagement on future development occurs in their neighborhood. Please tell me you know what Bill 68 is. No? It's okay. I understand. Bill 68 is the Election Statutes Amendment Act 2021. Does that help at all? In this bill is a measure that allows Alberta MLAs to publicly campaign on referendum issues that will appear on October's municipal ballots. I talked with Mount Royal political scientist Dwayne Bratt about the impact it might have on this year's civic elections. Well, I'm sure that they've done that to allow um, uh, Cabinet and in particular Kenny to argue in favor of passing uh, the referendum question. And we don't know what that question is yet. Uh, on equalization. This is not an impartial referendum to guide the opinion of Albertans. The government has a clear opinion and they want the people of Alberta to agree with them. So it, that is why they, the legislation was changed. Um, each referendum is a bit different uh, because we haven't had many referendums in, in Alberta. But if you look at, for example, the secession referendums, in, in Quebec, they established, you know, a yes side and a no side, and people could work on one side or the other, and there were spending limits and uh, donation limits and all of that. This is a bit different. This is saying, you know, there's going to be a referendum, uh, and cabinet is is free to to speak on one side or or the other. My guess is they're all going to speak on on one side. When issues like this come up, there's a, there's been a lot of talk over the fact that when we tack on issues like this, which you said you, it, the government clearly has a position, it brings out a certain type of voter that also can influence a municipal election. Do you think that's the case here where we're, we're putting this on the ballot? I mean, maybe, yeah, because we want Albertans' opinions on it. But we're also bringing out a certain voter that will also help elect a certain candidate. Do you think that plays out here? Oh, absolutely. I don't think decisions are made solely on one factor or another. I think there's a multitude of, of explanations here. And let's start with the equalization referendum. Um, this was a campaign promise of, of 2019, and they specifically said it would be held in conjunction 
with the municipal election. I think part of that was around uh, cost savings. You know, there's already an election going on. We'll just add this question. Uh, that's what they've done with um, Senate elections in the, in the past. That's why municipalities will put plebiscite items all at the same time. So as a as a cost saving. So I think that that is one explanation. But I think the second explanation um, is really to drive certain types of voters to the polls. And I wrote about this for for CBC the other day, and I compared it to the Karl Rove strategy back in 2004 and 2006. Grove encouraged a group of citizens in different states to put ballot initiatives in conjunction with the presidential election on same-sex marriage. The idea was to drive social conservatives to the polls, and then once they're there, they were also going to vote for Republican candidates. And there is some evidence to suggest that this made a difference in the state of Ohio in the 2004 presidential election. And while we tend to, to think that this was a, a big victory for, for George W. Bush because he won a majority uh, of the vote, if in fact he had lost Ohio, John Kerry would have been president. And you can't make definitive statements, but but clearly the, the ballot initiatives on, on same-sex marriage had an impact on the election in Ohio and in some other states as well. And fast forward to Alberta. Yes, there is opposition uh, to the equalization program, even if people don't fully understand it. It's typically seen as a proxy for um, anti-Ottawa sentiment, or in some cases, anti-Quebec sentiment. So you'll often get a, a comment that, you know, Quebec's $10 a daycare is paid through equalization funds. And that, that's a bit simplistic, but there is a, an attitude there. But when you break it down by party support, the people who really hate equalization the most tend to be the most conservative people in the province. Those that are either fine with the principle of equalization or would like to see some rejigging, they tend to be more on the progressive side of the, of the province. And so how can you get those much more conservative people to come out and vote in an election? step back one one more step here though and that is it is clear that the provincial government is unhappy with big city councils they are unhappy with the city of calgary they're unhappy with the city of edmonton uh they don't like the mayors they don't like members of council not all members but they, they they basically see it as a as a form of opposition so how can you change the complexion of packed into the municipal election that predicting the impact is going to be very difficult. You have open seats for mayors in both Calgary and Edmonton. That tends to make things more competitive. That tends to uh, increase voter turnout. You have a lot of other long-serving councillors not running it. So you're going to see turnover that we haven't seen before. Then you've got a provincial referendum on a federal program. What impact does that have? Are we going to ask Jody Garnick and Jeremy Fargus what they think about equalization? Uh, how does that compare to being the, the mayor of Calvert? What about a plebiscite on fluoridation? Uh, I'm hearing we could also have other referendums, whether that's on pensions or police or daylight savings time. 
how does that affect the election? I simply don't know. There's just going to be so many moving parts here six months out. I think it will be interesting to see how this influences municipal voters, if at all. Certainly something to keep an eye on once we see how the ballot questions are framed. As we're chatting here via the CJSW 90.9 airwaves, Calgary City Councillors are talking about the amended downtown strategy, along with a $200 million ask from city administration to kickstart work in the core. The Greater Downtown Calgary Plan is a document that outlines how the city hopes to transform the downtown with a heavier emphasis on residential living and public amenities and attractions that bring tourism into the area. I had a chance to chat with Ward 1 Councillor Ward Sutherland about the investment and why he thinks it's important. It's $200 million, Like to a lot of people, $200 million is is a lot of money. Uh, but uh, I mean, how do you feel about the amount that's being that's being sought for the Greater Downtown Calgary Plan? What's missing in the picture that's really critical is we've lost 18 billion worth of value downtown. The, the number one question is, well, uh, for example, I live in Rocky Ridge, so I'm in the suburbs. So why should I care about the downtown? And the fact is, is as the downtown loses its value and deteriorates, my taxes go up automatically. Right. And that's without the city spending one more dime. So people need to understand that the vibrancy of the downtown directly affects them financially. That's the first one. The second, of course, in the bigger picture, is your downtown is is your living room and uh, attraction for tourism, etc., uh, across the nations for any city. So as our downtown is deteriorated, uh, the amount of people that come down and the crime, et cetera, has escalated. And it's proven through the studies of other cities that are dealing with the same vacancy issues that um, it doesn't fix itself. That's a fact. It doesn't fix itself. So we can either do nothing or do something, because if we do nothing, it's not going to get better. In fact, it's going to get worse. Doing nothing is not an option. The $200 million is just an initial ask I was actually surprised to see that over the next 10 years, this this plan is going to need almost a billion or if not more than a billion dollars in order to in order to get it to where we want it. Do you think Calgarians, given even what you've said here, do you think Calgarians are going to believe that this is a reasonable investment for the downtown? So. uh I think the interpretation of the billion dollars is not taxpayers' money. They're, we're talking about private investment, too. So, I, I mean, this is related to private investment. So I'll give you an example is, uh, you know, the incentive we're going to use, you know, for office conversion and for tear down and, and rebuild residential development, uh, you know, you're looking at 90 to $150 million of investment for one single building to do that, a private investment, not our money. So this is, you know, this is the catalyst of that uh, conversion and replacement of office that we should have done. But, you know, we, this is a long history of, uh, I will say, of all councils and, and, and mayors. During the boom time, it was 100% offices and no major city does 100% offices. You have to have people living downtown. 
Otherwise, you don't have a downtown community. And at five o'clock, everybody exits and it's a ghost town. Now we're dealing with that situation, whether we like it or not, because this is long-term decisions from 15, 20 years ago as the boom happened and this was allowed to happen to build all these buildings with no living in it. Now it's catching up on us, obviously, because of uh, what's happened in the uh, uh, economic situation with the oil companies. We have to create the incentive to have people to live downtown and have a downtown community. That is, if we don't do that, downtown will never improve. We're not going to do it through offices. It's never going to happen. Do you have a sense of, with a $200 million initial investment, what sort of catalyst that will be for bringing in the type of investment that we're looking for? Like, has the city come up with some sort of a ratio? We invest $200 million, we are going to expect... 350, 400 million in commensurate outside investment. Do you, do you have a sense of what that might be? To make it a little bit confusing is when they, when you look at the breakdown of the 200 million, not all of it's for incentive in return. 45 million, for example, is for the conversion. Now, is that enough? We're not sure. We're not sure at this point. Uh, it's a starting point. And we look at the 45 million, we're looking at incentives where, for example, is you have an older building. Uh, it, it might be more, it might make more sense financially for that particular owner of the building to tear it down and rebuild, uh, a new building that's residential. What we can offer and able to do through these incentives to say, well, each individual case will look at financially and say, okay, um, during this period of time, you pay no taxes at all. And that's the incentive for them to spend their 80 to 100 million dollars. What we're trying to do is, with these incentives, is to leverage and encourage the private investment to go ahead and do it where it becomes financially sensible that they could actually do it. That has to go with the plus 15, too, the plus 15 system, because when times were good, things were so good that a lot of the investors, how should I say it is, they they could just afford to pay for all the extras and just let it be. But the reality of the economy today in the near future is a lot of these extras that the city charged makes investment, certain investments, it makes them no longer financially sustainable at all because they've had to pay for extras. So the plus 15 is a prime example where a particular, I will tell you who the, uh, the developer is, is encouraged and, and wants to, they were originally going to do office of that. And they said, okay, they haven't built yet. The property's there, but they haven't built it. They said, okay, we'll do residential. And we're going great. And then, the, and then, oh, well, our policy is plus 15 and you're going to have to pay for plus 15 and this and this and this and all these add-ons ended up being several million. And then, the investor came back and said, uh, no, we're not interested because all those extras that you just asked for actually made the whole plan non-profitable. It's not worth doing. We have to look at how we leverage our money and, and how we work with investors together as a partner for them to invest all the money. Think of it this way. is Let's say we, through this incentives, we uh, encouraged nine or ten investors to redo their buildings. That alone could be a billion dollars of private investment because you're looking 80 to 100 million per building. 
depending on what you're doing. So it's all about leveraging. It's we're not, you know, we're creating the environment to get the project done quickly, get it done cost effectively, relieving that pressure of the taxes. You, by the way, you still have to pay the same taxes if the building was full. Well, the building actually doesn't exist. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of, okay, here's the environment to leverage the money. Right. And that's what's required. So there's several parts. Like when you look at the whole strategy, and this is the biggest thing is how do you say in a 30 second clip to people that are in the suburbs to explain the big picture that, you know what, that the event center, BMO, Arts Commons, etc., they create an, an environment and uh, attraction for tourists to come downtown, for Calgarians to come downtown, and to generate all these tax dollars for these properties that makes it a great city, but it also keeps their property tax down. So are you saying, <laughs> this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but by spending the $200 million, this is, well, and of course, we've got BMO, and we've got Arts Commons, and we've got the Event Centre, by spending the money today, um, we're saving you tax money down the road. By regaining the value downtown takes off the tax burden that has been spread throughout the city. This is a 10 to 20 year project. It is not an overnight thing. Calgarians looking for an instant return on the $200 million investment may be disappointed. The reality is, with COVID and the changing Calgary economy, the core was ready for a retooling, and the city and the stakeholders involved think this is the blueprint to do it. We packed a lot in this week. Thanks go out to Becky Poshman, Dwayne Bratt, and Ward Sutherland for chatting with me. And of course, to you, the listener, for sticking around for the latest on what's happening in Calgary. We will catch you again next month. So long. 